Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the host of every Vox Media podcast. Peter Kafka and Ezra Klein are just some of my many voices. But in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, you're going to get two interviews for the price of one, both of which I conducted at the Lesbians Who Tech Summit in New York earlier this month. First up is an interview with Maggie Haberman from The New York Times and Lydia Polgreen, the editor-in-chief of The Huffington Post. What did we talk about? What else? Trump, technology, and the future of news. Then, later in the show, you'll hear my interview with actor Jane Lynch about the future of entertainment and technology. Special thanks to the organizers of Lesbians Who Tech who let us share this audio with you in the podcast. And now let's go to Stage 48 in New York City for my interview with Maggie Haberman and Lydia Polgreen. I'm here with two of my favorite people, two of the most, I think, important journalists around. Maggie Haberman from the New York Times. Um, Thank you. And uh, Lydia Polgreen, who runs the Huffington Post. And Lydia used to also be at the New York Times. Um, So what we're going to be talking about is obviously Trump. Trump, Trump, and more Trump. But I, I do want to get into, Maggie, what is your temperature right now in Trump? Land? Maggie 92 bro- degrees. Ma- Ma- Maggie brought her uh, phone on stage because she has to carry it everywhere. And that's not a thing oh. people do. No, no. I, was, I was saying, you know, um, you know, the great Aretha Franklin, rest in power, would always bring her purse on stage with her because um, I guess <laughs> she didn't want it to get stolen. And so Mag, like, like, uh, like, like Aretha, and by the way, Maggie's got quite a set of pipes, so um, she's got more in common with Aretha than you'd think. But uh, okay, I'm going to go now because it's okay. not going to get better than this. <laughs> All right, Just give us a few t- bars. Where, where are we right now? Because you are like waiting for the next explosion to happen, right? Correct. By explosion, you mean like a tweet? I mean this morning. So this morning, the the president of the United States tweeted questioning the the death toll. Uh, in Puerto Rico as a democratic plot against him. So uh-huh. that was, I think, the about as much of an explosion as we've seen, certainly, uh, in, his use of, in, his, right, in his use of technology. I mean, look, I, I think that we have seen by various metrics, you have fact checkers that do a, a running tabulation of his falsehoods, his lies, his exaggerations. Clearly, is the volume has increased uh, just by any metric. Um, I think that that is at least in part because the number, uh, the, the objective reality that he is facing is becoming harder for him to get away from. I, we are going to be in sort of this holding pattern until Mueller, the special counsel, either takes an action or more likely than taking an action um, of indicting somebody close to the president, because I, I don't believe he's going to indict the president. 
delivers a report to Congress, and that will say whatever it will say, and then there are the midterms, and people will either will either vote, you know, a Republican Congress out or not, but it's all going to hinge on that. It's all going to hinge on the midterms and so, what happens with him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the White House recognizes, and I think he finally has started to, but because he likes to sell all the time, he can't help himself from saying there's a red wave coming, which drives his advisors crazy because they need soft Republican voters to go out to the polls and, and vote, and Trump's not on the ballots. And they don't, they don't believe people like me saying, actually, Republicans have a problem. They think, well, you're the people who told us that Hillary Clinton was going to win, so why would we listen to you? And so they're very concerned about getting their voters out. If they lose control of Congress, even, even if the president is, it does not face impeachment hearings, which depends on who you talk to, he will or he won't, the oversight piece is going to become so specific and voluminous for Democrats looking at all sorts of things that this Republican Congress didn't choose to. And that's just going to grind the gears of his government to a halt. Ah, well then. Yeah, I mean, I think I think just to just to echo that, um, there was an interesting spectacle this week where you saw a series of stories quoting Mitch McConnell and others, basically raising the alarm that the Senate is in play. And in normal times, you would think that that's just uh, the sort of political game of expectation lowering. But uh, in this case, I think it reflects a genuine alarm that, in fact, the Senate is in play in a way that the Republicans didn't anticipate it being. And so I, I think we are at this very interesting moment right now. By the way, I would say that winning the House is, you know, by no means a foregone conclusion. And I think people are being incredibly complacent uh, just from my Twitter feed and social conversations. I mean, I was in um, Provincetown uh, this summer and it was clear. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, it, it was just clear that, you know, it was like, we're going to win the House, right? And I was like, well, don't include me in your we, first of all. And second of all, um, no, I, I don't think it is. It is a certainty by any means. Uh, a 70 percent probability is not a 100 percent probability. So we saw that meter, the New York Times meter, our favorite thing. I don't think we'll see that meter again. No, it in went quite away. The same it went way. away. Um, so talk about how you approach covering this now, because it is, you know, you may you grew up covering New York politics. That's where you got to know Donald Trump, um, who apparently never speaks to you except for all the time. Um, it seems like. Um, I'm correct, correct. Sources close to the situation say that. We're going to do this apparently every six months. We're going to have this conversation. Well, you're not going to tell me. All right. All right. So, um, but how do you think about covering it? Because it is a relentless grind. This isn't a particularly active social media president. This is someone who's constantly in the news and making his own news and not doing the traditional things. So talk about sort of your, how you're looking at covering this, because you must be exhausted. I hope I don't look how I feel. No, no, you um, I, uh, Look, I think that every news outlet, I think the Times, the Washington Post, I think the networks, I think that there has had to be a constant calibration of how you cover this person, because to your point, this is not a typical presidency. This is somebody who likes to create his own weather um, and does not adhere to almost any norms of a traditional White House. And so I think for most of last year, for those of us who covered the campaign, what was going on with him was not particularly new, but it's very different when it's the president. And I think there was a sense of like, we were in, inside the, the pinball machine following the ball, basically, you know, uh, ricocheting from one place to another. I think that for myself, I have focused more recently on aspects of the investigation. 
uh, into uh, possible campaign collusion and obstruction of justice that Mueller is doing. I also was involved in the coverage of the Michael Cohen case out of the Southern District of New York, in part because these are, um, it involves events and people that I've known for a long time, but I think there is a repetitiveness about some of the coverage now. Um, yeah. I think that applies for all of us. I just think, I, I can't read another story that begins with the words, President Trump fumed. It's, it doesn't tell you anything new. Rage. Um, raged, volcanic. It, um, chaos in chaos, the White House. The, you know, the Bob Woodward book that just came out fills in a lot of details of stuff that we have all been covering, but it doesn't tell you f- something fundamentally new about this White House. It's right. What we've known, what, what is there is what we've known. So I'm trying to basically look for something that can tell people about a different aspect of it. And I'm also trying to do more about policy because there's, as we are all chasing these shiny objects, there's a lot going on that is going to impact the country for a long time. What about you, Lydia? Because when we talked, we talked. To, you wanted to reach a different kind of reader at the Huffington Post. You had just taken the job, and obviously politics is big at where you, that you cover, and you have a big bureau there. How has that changed? Because you thought that you really wanted to really reach out to a different reader than the postal elite, I think. Or how is how are you thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it's interesting because the, the Times is an institution because it's so big. I mean, there are 1,500 journalists, so they can have people who are hyper-specialized, like Maggie, who are breaking stories all the time on the Russia investigation, the Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort, and then also be out there covering have other people out there covering all kinds of of news um, all around the world. And I think for a smaller news organization, um, you know, you have to make choices and and trade-offs. So one of the the big choices that I made, and this was in part informed by a trip that we did across the country. We did a bus tour, visited 26 cities, and talked to 1,700 people over the course of this. And one of the most remarkable things about this tour was you could count on both of your hands in 1,700 in- interviews how many people brought up Trump. It just, you know, people, it, it could be that they were sick of it, or it could be that it's like Voldemort, the, you know, the, the name you dare not utter. But I think that, you know, what I took away from that is that, you know, there is a hunger for uh, journalism on lots of different topics. Um, and there are things that are absolutely affected and influenced by the administration. Um, you know, we have always had a strong emphasis on healthcare, for example, but we've also recently picked up a tremendous interest in um, affordable housing based on some of the things that we learned on the tour. We've always had a strong focus on LGBTQ issues. We've had women and people of color. So I think for us, it's it's not so much saying we're not going to cover Trump because obviously we do. We have a great uh, Washington bureau that breaks stories and does a lot of great coverage, but that, you know, on particular stories like, say, uh, you know, the multiple investigations into the Trump administration, I think that there are a bunch of news organizations that are doing fantastic work on that, and I don't think we need to play the, um, you know, us two game uh, where we're, we're chasing after the same scoops that they're getting. So, you know, part of serving the audience that, that we see is out there for HuffPost is making those kinds of choices and trade That are different. But, you know, that said, I follow every single tweet from Maggie and, um, you know, Ravenous, and we often, you know, cover the stories that others break because our audience wants to know about it. Speaking of that, are you back on Twitter? 
Um, temporarily. Oh, okay. <laughs> just for today. <laughs> That's like a crack addict. Do you understand? Just I, I, I do. We, we, you and I have had discussions about the addictive nature of Twitter yeah. before. Do you remember um, the night I tweeted you stop, stop answering Russian bots? You were yeah. Talking, you were arguing with Russian bots? Yes. Yeah. You've done a couple of interventions, I actually, have. over time. <laughs> no, they, they haven't no. stuck yet. I'm a chronic relapser. Um, no, I mean, I... I um, when the Cohen case happened, I got back on a little bit. Um, Explain. You went. You famously went off Twitter. Yeah, I didn't mean to famously go off Twitter. But you wrote a whole I mean, column was, about well, it, so I might perhaps. Jim, Jim Dow, who 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 recently solicited a far more interesting op-ed and debated yeah, op-ed. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about that. Um, great. I, I, he <laughs> asked me to write about it, and I actually I have thoughts about. I, that Social I don't media. mean. Yeah, I have, th- I have thoughts about Twitter and why I think it's destructive in the in the discourse, and I do. Um, but I also think that it's not just that. Well, it's you know, that new- the journalists use it as their AP newswire now, which I think a lot of people do. But the president made this his his forum, and so that made Twitter into an entirely different thing than it had been before, and something that everybody had to pay attention to. And I don't think we have all figured out how to deal with the fact that journalists, in particular, and I'm putting hand up here myself on this, we, you know, we tend to forget that we are not in a Slack channel when we're on Twitter. We're not sitting around a, a yep. newsroom talking to each other. And so things that sound like in-jokes or that other journalists would get actually can sound kind of terrible out of context or weird or unprofessional. And I think that that's a problem. Yeah. So you're temporarily... So that's why I'm staying there. No, okay. I'm, I'm, temporarily, I'm temporarily using it. I don't plan on being back for good. I don't know how else to answer that question. It's Until something else. Not a answer. Yeah. Right. I mean, look, I had, I had said I was going to tweet breaking news and my own stories, and I, and I generally stuck to that. Um, and I will go back to that. You know, I, I've never uh, publicly quit Twitter and never really felt the need to. Um, I have a tendency just not to engage uh, with um, critics of um, bad faith critics, I guess I would say. People who are interested in honest dialogue, I'm always happy to engage with. But bad faith, um, bad faith kind of trolling does not interest me at all. I keep my quality filter on uh, for all of my mentions. So there's a lot of stuff that I actually just don't see, which is which is great. And you know. When I, I, I got on the beta for iOS 12, and um, having your phone remind you how much time you're spending on social media, it's a little naggy, but it's actually good. Um, and, and I think that having a sense of proportion and knowing that this actually doesn't represent real life is, uh, is important. I mean, that said, you know, it, for me, it's a pretty tough call to say which has been more destructive to our discourse and our democracy. And I, I would put two suspects in the dock. The first suspect is social media. But I think perhaps the more insidious and more dangerous suspect is actually cable TV news. Um, I think which that able- cable TV news. Cable TV news. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that over decades, uh, cable TV news has essentially trained the audience to see politics in a deeply, deeply fucked up way. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But you it, fucking and, are able and, to say that. And, 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 you know, this notion of it's a horse race, that you balance things with two people shouting at one another. When you see every night our politics portrayed in that way in your living room, of course you end up with a reality star as president. Can I add one thing to that? Because I think think you're right. Um, But I think that it's, 
part of the problem in terms of covering Trump specifically. I mean, you're talking about a long devolution that goes back many years. Um, but part of the part of how this has translated into coverage and the difficulty and the sort of distortion bubble uh, that we're all in now is the combo of Twitter and I think cable news. The, the reaction to Trump from from all of us, and I mean, it really I really mean cable. Um, but I think that it, they, it becomes a feedback loop. Everything has been a four-alarm fire. So, and not everything is actually a four-alarm fire. So when he does right. something like this morning and suggests that American deaths didn't happen and that this is being suggested as a part of a democratic plot against him, that is an astonishing statement from a president. Right. And um, it did get attention, but it didn't get the kind of attention it might otherwise because everything is getting that much attention at all times. Yeah, but that's with everything, right? I mean, but when, that's with everything with him. I guess what I'm saying is, I just think that like, if everything is a big deal, then nothing is, right? Right. And I think that is where we have found ourselves how for that you, reason. How, how do journalists do that? Because one of the things um, you just mentioned that just briefly, I think both of you did, is that how do you change the way, especially using lots of these tech tools, because things have sped up. And you know, I said it's become weaponized. It's just like this faster and amplified and weaponized, and more and more, and you get misconstrued um, almost continually. How do you change that? Because I remember, I think I told you this, I was watching The Fourth Estate, which Maggie is in. It's a documentary at the New York Times. And I was at the New York Times, and they asked me what I thought of it in front of a group of people from the New York Times. And I said, you know, it was about four guys, white guys named Michael, I think. There was four of them running around, <laughs> running around, and there was some crisis with Trump, and I couldn't keep them apart. Like, I couldn't understand which one they were. They were equally angry at each of them. And then every... 30 minutes, you'd come in and you'd go, oh, fuck, and then walk out. <laughs> that, was, that was the whole thing. And then Elizabeth Boomuller would be typing on her stand-up desk. That was it. So it was... I was terrifyingly on-target review. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you'd be sitting on a chair like this, like, with your kid or something like that. Rolling my eyes. Rolling your eyes with, at the four Michaels. Who, and the four Michaels kept getting increasingly fat. That's what I kept thinking. And, and Trump got increasingly powerful. That's, that's my entire review now. But how do you change that? Because you have to be part of these tools. You both are always on. You're always checking. I'm the same way. And I'm just covering a section of it, the tech section of it. What happens with our political coverage in, with given what's happened here, which is it's a Twitter-centric, it's a social media-centric, it's a cable-centric, it's an instant amplified. What has to happen? It has to slow down, which is what, part of why I got off Twitter in the first place. But then I came back, right? So that's there's your answer um, in terms of how I, I feel this is controllable. I think one of the things that when we talk about you know our political coverage as if it's a all one collective. I mean, the, the, Donald Trump was expert during the campaign at manipulating media against other media. It's what he did for decades in New York City with the tabloids. He did it with the national media. The national media was not equipped to understand what was going on. We just weren't. He played network news hosts off one another. He would try to whip, and, and some of this is not novel, but he used it to great effect. So it's not going to stop because we are all in competition with one another still. And so I think this is just going to be the way it is until, until Donald Trump is, is not president anymore because Donald Trump favors this kind of media environment and helps foster it. I wish that was a better answer, but- Is I that herald in a day that these are gonna be the politicians we're gonna get? One ridiculous blowhard after the next? It, it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, I think we have a long history of having blowhards as presidents, um, kind of the pattern. Um, they're just 
considerably less blowhardy. I think like being a bit of a blowhard is a like core requirement of running for president um, at a certain level. But you know, I, like it's it's really hard to speculate on what a post-Trump America will look like because um, none of us really know. We could end up in a situation where essentially only somebody who's become some kind of a celebrity can become president. And it's it's interesting because there's been a lot of talk about um, Beto O'Rourke. Is it Beto? Beto, Beto. yeah, Beto. Um, and like this guy, if he loses his Senate seat, we're already talking about him as a potential presidential contender for 2020. And I think what that reflects, and this is no not a no dig on him, is that he has been so successful at creating a kind of cult of celebrity around himself with his, you know, the way that he looks. He was in a punk band. He skateboards. And those things, I think, are... Those those kinds of biographical details have always been part of any politician's story that they tell the, the voters. But um, I've just been watching his rise and the excitement about him and thinking that it is that kind of, like, celebrity entertainment. I don't know, Maggie, do you, have you noticed this? I have. I mean, I just think that, and I, and I think there is something to that. I think, I, I think that people are taking the wrong lesson, though, from Trump, which is that there's the why not me chorus. And so if you're Jamie Dimon, you know, yeah, I'm a rich guy totally. from Queens, why not me? If I'm Beto O'Rourke, I'm a celebrity, why not me? The thing that I think that we, I, I know I certainly missed it um, in 2016, the biggest thing that we missed was that we would write these stories about Trump's business, and we would write these stories about sort of the, the businessman in New York who we knew, and it was so dramatically at odds with what voters in the country had been seeing on television of him on The Apprentice, and the line between entertainment and news is very blurred for people who are not in the business. And so I would go to these rallies in Iowa, and I would ask them, you know, they'd be at the Trump rally, and I'd, I'd ask them if they were gonna vote for him, and they'd be like, absolutely. You know, I watched him build this, run his business, you know, and I mean, then they, they were talking about The Apprentice as if it was, re, it was actual reality television as opposed to like a TV set. So I just think there were a set of conditions around Trump that were not just the celebrity component. The branding was so deep and so specific that I don't think we're going to duplicate that anytime soon, just because that was over 14 seasons. So. No, I think that's right, but I would also add that... Sorry, I didn't mean it like that. I would, I I would that also that add that, um, you know, like someone who picked up on this and was a, an astute practitioner of making a lot of money off of it was Jeff Zucker, right? I mean, he quite specifically saw the value of the Trump campaign as entertainment. And now I think about that and like a chill goes down my spine. Yeah, well, also the Huffington Post under our, remember they were putting it in the entertainment section. That was, that was before my time. Yeah, yes. I know that, you, you did not do that. All right, last question. We just have a few uh, minutes. Moving into the next election, presidential election, I want you to make a prediction. Assume the Democrats win the House and not the Senate, which I think probably most people are guessing would happen. What does our political landscape look like? I think it's going to be a very ugly election, 2020. I had a, I had a White House official say to me the other day, you know, if you think that 2016 was unpleasant in terms of Trump's tactics, 2020 is going to make that look like a like a parade, basically. And so, I mean, I a think parade. that assuming it's we, it's all fun and happy. Yeah, I got. I know like what a parade Trump, is. Okay, it wasn't well, a parade. Just to explaining <laughs> the, um, the just 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 if, in case you need an, an identifier. Um, 
I, Who has he left to insult? I'm like, I think it's going to be more than just insulting. I mean, the, remember him bringing Hillary Clinton's husband's accusers to a debate and oh, making right. her That's walk right. in front of them, which was the most savage thing I have ever seen in politics. That will be that will be like a minor aspect of what we're going to look at. It's if it's Elizabeth Warren, you can imagine what it's going to look like. If it's like he calls her Pocahontas now, so extravagant. You're going to bring out. a tribe of Indians? What, I'm just saying. I think that it's going to be. I think that po our politics nationally for over several cycles now, but it really reached a peak, honestly, in 2014, not 2016, has been a race to the bottom where everybody's numbers are upside down. And so I think that if the Senate holds Republican and Democrats take the House by a slim margin, you are still going to need Republican votes to get anything done in the House. You are going to have subpoenas flying all over the place at the White House. Um, you are going to have Trump... Um, embittered and angry and defiant. And I think that's what we're going to sail into 2020 with. Assuming everything stays the same, the X factor for me is, you know, obviously unforeseen events. And Trump going to be the Republican nominee in 2020, the unforeseen event. It's, it's hard for me to see him walking away. It's really hard for me to see him walking away, but I don't know what the landscape is. Not going to predict anything. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think a really interesting choice is before the Democrats. Do you choose someone who's going to be a bare knuckle brawler against um, Trump? Um, well, I mean, I think Joe Biden would like to think of himself as that. I think Joe Biden. He was Biden, jogging the other day. Yeah, he's got some. He's got. He's got some problems. Some of us. Some of us remember Anita Hill. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, I remember. But. Um, I think a different path is to try and kind of like recreate the Obama coalition with a truly inspiring candidate. And a people chance. will say, well, you know, Hillary was supposed to be a truly inspiring, but you know, Hillary is an older person. She's a very well-known figure who came with a lot of baggage. And so I think people are looking at someone like Beto, um, but actually more likely, I think a person of color would, uh, and a person of color who's a woman, perhaps. Um, and that's, you know, it seems clear to me that in the current landscape, the only way the Democrats can win the presidency is through in like significantly expanding the electorate via, like ins via inspiration. Right. Um, I think that if they try to play on the, on, on Donald Trump's chosen turf, they're, they're going to lose. All right, last question. Who wrote the op-ed? Lydia. I did. <laughs> no, come on. Guess, best guess. No, I, Maggie I, does not know. Just so you know, the editorial yeah, section. Not, neither of us have any inside yeah. information about this, so you we don't know. You read it when everybody else did. Um, I mean, I've received, uh, I've been on the receiving end of a lot of speculation that perhaps it was Nick Ayers, who is uh, Mike Pence's chief of staff. You know, John Huntsman is another favorite suspect. Uh, some people say Mattis, uh, based on close reading of the text. Um, you know, for fun, just so I can disagree with Maggie, I'm going to go with Nick Ayers. I have absolutely no idea, mm -hmm. um, but of the, what was it, 25 people who issued denials, which I still can't believe people did that, um, I think there's a very strong chance that one of those denials, will, history will prove it was not Yes, true, so. so which one? I don't know. <laughs> And I'm not going to guess. I know you won't. Good idea, Maggie. Uh, <laughs> obviously, it was Melania. <laughs> The jacket didn't work. I don't care, do you? Yeah, I'm just telling you. She's just no upping your game. No comment. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, Lydia Poling. 
Thanks to Maggie Haberman and Lydia Polgreen for joining me on stage at the Lesbians Who Text Summit in New York. We're going to take a quick break now, but after this, you'll hear the other interview I did at the summit with actor Jane Lynch. Stay tuned. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Jane Lynch. Hey, why? Are you going to wear those glasses the whole time? You want me to? What do you guys think? Do you want to? All right. Oh, wait. I'll put on. You know, I'm trying to avoid intimacy with you because I'm so wild. Yeah. I'm so wildly attracted to you. I want to see the vulnerability you. in your eyes. Really? All right. Yeah. Okay. Nope. There, yeah, I see it. Okay, all right, there, okay. there, are there you go. to the soul. So, uh, the reason we want to have Jane here, she's besides being a secret techie, which over the years, sort of, sort of. And we're going to talk a little bit about. We're going to start. <laughs> we're going to start talking about Netflix and, yeah. and things that you're doing. One of the things you know I write about is the shift in Hollywood, the shift mm -hmm. in everything. Talk a little bit about your Netflix show, your recent one, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, that's Am Amazon. Amazon. I'm sorry. Yes. Amazon. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Well, here, I don't really Thank have a, an interesting um, techie answer because it's all the same work. Right. I just did an episode of The Marvelous Miss Maisel a couple of weeks ago, and I heard the, Dan Palladino, who's the writer, say um, that you know, most people are going to be watching this on their phones, yet they go to all the, this trouble to light it beautifully, and you know, um, they, it, we're doing the same work. So I really don't have an interesting technical but, but, answer. But not a technical answer, but from a perspective of, of someone. Now, you've, been, you've worked for a network, you've done movies, you, mm -hmm. you sort of brought up in the traditional Hollywood system, even though you did a lot of indies right. before that. Right, exactly. Right, because when I met you, you were sort of Vaguely famous. You had been in a lot of the, those, you know what I Vaguely, mean? Vaguely, yes. Like we would be walking, in, <laughs> no, we'd be, we'd be walking in like Sundance, do you remember? And people yeah. would be like this and then remember you from the dog movie and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, and, <laughs> but then you, it took off with Glee when you had a national, you know, it was, right. a, it was a big network show. Exactly. Um, and you were fantastic in it. Thank you. How do you look at these tech companies coming in? and hiring you, like working for Amazon. I mean, they sell toilet paper also. I know, but when yeah. I, God, I, I, wish, I wish I had a better techie answer. When I worked for Fox, I didn't think about working for Fox. When I do uh, The Marvelous Miss Maisel, I don't think about working for Amazon so much, but I, I will put a tech um, spin on how things have changed since I started um, acting in television probably in the mid 90s and now is you were expected to have a social media presence. Yeah. Now, not me so much because I'm an old person, mm -hmm. but young people, um, they will cast someone who has a million more followers than another person and maybe they're not the better actor. That it, it's definitely something 
that the um, uh, businesses who are looking at their bottom line, like the, the Netflix and the Amazon, that's why you're seeing sometimes uh, YouTube people get television shows. Uh -huh. um, How do you feel about that? Uh, you know, it, 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 every generation has its abomination. <laughs> you know, I know like back in, uh, you remember uh, film people never did um, television. It was like, well, I'm not going to slum it in television. And now you can't keep the film people away from television. It's a golden age for television now. Right, right. The best writing and the, um, some of the best product, artistic product out there. And, you know, movies aren't so much, you know, um, so it's good for actors, I guess, that there are there are all this money from Google or whether yes. it's from Netflix. Interesting about else. Netflix, though, um, you you can't get rich like you used to doing a network show. There Explain is explain the rich part. Go ahead. Uh, um, there is a fixed amount of money you make every actor makes on a Netflix series. So if you're in and like I'm sure if you're a star. Uh, a big star, you'll, you'll see them in the producer credits and you'll see that they've directed a few. That's how they supplement and make the big money. But um, Netflix has a, a, a scale. Uh, so if you are in the, the episode and you are in a majority of it, you get, I don't know exactly the number, but let's just say, because I, I don't know what the number is, let's just say 100 grand an episode, which is nothing to sneeze at, of course. But say you only have one line, you might only get 10 grand. <laughs> and I don't know if these are the numbers. Don't quote me on this, please. But uh, yeah, so uh, like I saw a, a fellow actor and I said, hey, congratulations on your Netflix series. It's doing really well. And she said, yeah, but I'm not getting rich. You know? ah. And because, of course, we're in this to get rich, like you are. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in the uh, network shows, every year you, 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 know, can, you get a raise, you get a bump. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, if, you, if the show does well, you get, get a nice raise. Um, like the Friends, the, the, the uh, show Friends, they started out probably 20, 30 grand an episode. Again, nothing to sneeze at. But by the end of it, they were making a million dollars an episode. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when the, the shifting nature of Hollywood, you know, we just had this Les Moonves uh, stepping yes. down uh, for being a pig in so many ways. I know, it seems unbelievable. Like. Did um, you, what was that article you were referencing? Oh, there, Linda uh, Bloodworth, Bloodworth Thomas. Thomas. That was just yeah, it's, shocking. It's yeah. in the Times today. I yeah, think. someone, yeah, it was in the Hollywood Reporter. Hollywood, oh, okay. Yeah, and she, I think the big line was, I, besides comparing him to Charlie Manson, um, no. she did note that, uh, she said what happened on her, she was a big TV Yeah, uh, designing women. Um, uh, a whole bunch. A whole yeah, bunch. Nightshade, yeah. Nightshade. And she said, she goes, someone asked her what happened to her, and she said, less moon best happened does. to me. But when you look at Hollywood and how it's changed, yeah. what has shifted? I mean, you talk a little bit about social media. You're really active on social media. Sort of. I just deleted my Twitter app. You did? I did, just for a while. Why? What happened? <laughs> I'm, I, I'm losing my life to this political climate and babies in cages, and I, I can't anymore. Right, <laughs> I have right. to let it go for a little bit. And what do you mean losing your life? I'm sorry, me? Losing your life that you spent a lot of time. I'm, I'm MSNBC's here, Twitter's here, and my heart is being pulled out of my chest. So I'm having, I'm just, for my own mental health, and I'm not good to anybody when I'm, you know, emotionally overwrought. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and right. I'm not a productive member of society. So I had to pull it back. And but, I, I'm not checking Twitter. I haven't in like two weeks. Oh, that's good for you. Good for yeah, you. I know. But when you think of your like career, do you feel like you have to do that? Like, do you have to have Instagram yeah. or you have to do Twitter? Or... I don't feel I yeah. have to, right. but I, I'm a team player. And, you know, I do Hollywood game night and they say, will you live tweet? 
Yes, and it's not the most fun thing in the world to do. Right. Um, uh, will you post this and will you post that? Sure. I mean, how hard is it for me to copy and paste what they send me and put it in my Twitter feed? Right. So, you know, they ask you to do that, and absolutely I'll do something like that. But I, I know that it's in some people's contracts, especially the younger kids who are on, like, the CW shows. Did that happen on Glee? Or, or uh, not? Th well, you know, this is interesting because Glee was the begin? Is this going to be all about me, or do we go talk about no, you? No, we're not talking point? about me at all. Because okay. Okay. this is prob I'm probably a little more interesting at this point. I love They that. know all about you. <laughs> no, that's okay. Let me finish that. All right, okay, good. So Glee was an interesting uh, point in um, social media because it was just starting to take off. Right. It was 2010 when we did our pilot. And we had about six months between our pilot and our first episode, and it blew up in social media in those six months. People started watching the pilot, which was online, and I think it was the first time. Was. You know, Fox released it online, and people watched it over and over again, and, and it whipped the audience into a froth, mm -hmm. a social media froth. Mm -hmm. People were tweeting about it. The kids themselves, the actors, were tweeting about it. We were... Um, going to, uh, the kids were, uh, going, going to like malls and they, they would, after year three, they wouldn't do this anymore, but they were going like to malls all over America and kids were showing up and you know, the, the whole selfie thing was just starting. And, uh, so the, and the metrics of television completely changed, mm -hmm. even though we still use the Nielsen's, which is kind of crazy that the yeah. networks use them still. No, I do think you got quantumly famous. Like, that, that's what happened. I remember yeah. walking in the Castro with you once, and it was right. insane. It was yes. insane, and it was yeah. selfies, and people wanting to yeah. get you. And, and I was, think Glee was, the, you know, I think if you look back, Glee was one of the first that um, was actually launched via social yes. media. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Empire. There were a couple of shows that did that. And what was it? Empire was in Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they came along a little later. Yeah. But I think that, uh, Glee was first because the music was also released on iTunes. Right. So as the episodes uh, were airing, people were, you know, it brought Foreigner back. <laughs> they started from, uh, right. oh, Journey, I'm sorry, Journey, uh, uh, Don't Stop Believing. They started touring again because that song got so yeah. famous. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Um, so how do you look when you're deciding what to do? You don't mm -hmm. care if it's... For Amazon? No, for, no not at all. Uh, I, I don't even... And your agents don't think like that? They're no, like, these not idiot at all. internet people are here with bags of money. Uh, look, I have, a, I'm, no, I, have a, I have a very small agency. I'm with a very small agency, and I've had the same agent for 16 years, and I, he doesn't care if I work or not. He really doesn't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and we have a great... We have a very healthy professional relationship. So I don't have that kind of... Uh, right pressure on me to like to keep going and I ran into a girl who was in two uh, I won't say what she's in that's a terrible thing to do but anyway she was in a big sitcom and it was coming to an end and it was a big hit and her agents were like mapping out what she should do next mm -hmm. and oh no don't do this charity do that charity and, and she was like like this, she didn't know what to do. She, she didn't have any instincts anymore. Because right. they were trying to build something for her, which included a lot of technology and, so, you know, her presence in social media. And she, she was way over her head. She didn't, she had no idea what she was doing. She just looked like a deer caught in the headlight yeah. and not an, an actress looking for her next right. role. Right. Did you think about that when Glee was ending? Because that was such a mega global Like hit. when it ended? Yeah, when like it what ended. I, what would I do? No, what happened? Like, how did you then think about that? You didn't do something like that. Right? Oh, no. You didn't no, no. suddenly start an internet fashion company, for example. No, I, I did not. Yes, yes. What I did do is I went right to another series, and it was on CBS. Mm -hmm. 
And um, now, it wasn't the greatest show in the world. It was called Angel from Hell, and, and I loved it. I thought it was really sweet. And it was two women, about two women. And we were gone in like five episodes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it, you know, it was good enough. It's better than a lot of the stuff that they keep. But if you looked at CBS in the last couple of years, it's all men's shows. Yes, that it, was the it's, point. It's so male-dominated in the yeah. CSIs and the, the sitcoms, yeah. you know, the, the bringing back uh, Kevin, um, uh, what, what was his name? I'm sorry? Yeah, bringing back Kevin James and Matt LeBlanc had a sitcom, and they like took every guy and whatever you know and th threw him against the sitcom wall and to see what would stick. But no women. It's a sitcom wall. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and and they didn't stick. You know, yeah. I, they yeah. Didn't, they didn't last very long. But um, yeah, well, we were we were gone in a flash. And uh, which the speed has like if you don't make it, correct? I, I wonder. Here I'm going to like claim sexism, but it might have Go been. Right like ahead. I said, I'm not saying it was like the no, greatest work of art in the world, it but it was better than a lot of stuff that was on. Yeah. And I wonder how much that. I, of course, lately I'm thinking about it. Going, maybe that's why we were canceled because we're <laughs> girls. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. But it was a Nina Tassler show. Yes. Nina was the head of television at the time, and she's fantastic. Answer that. How is that? How does it being a woman in Hollywood all these years? And... I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you is know, because I, you're a tall gay. Why? Yeah. Why? I, you know, I, I, I've made a career of playing men's roles. Right. Um, okay. I've, uh, I had an agent who was smart enough to say, hey, you know, for this doctor and this guest star on Empty Nest or you know Party of Five, what will you see a woman in? They go, yeah, sure. And then I would get it. And they feel like they get cast out of the box. Right. And uh, <laughs> so I, I kind of have made a career out of playing roles originally written for men. So I don't have, I really don't have a female perspective. I, I don't play an ingenue. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm very tall and lesbian. And <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> Are you coming back to the to the uh, to the L word reunion? I, w I hope so. Yeah, you'll yeah. play the lawyer. Are they doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah you'll play the lawyer. I'm sorry. You'll play the lawyer. I played a lawyer with yeah, uh, yeah and Sybil Shepherd was my lady. <laughs> How was that? Oh, that was that was so uncomfortable. <laughs> No, she's, she's great. It was uncomfortable for her. I'm thinking about the two of us in bed with nipple pasties on, wearing <laughs> nothing but boxer shorts and trying to act like we're in love. And it was, that, I, that's all I can remember of it, how, how uncomfortable it was. It was very uncomfortable. You never told me that. Very, very uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything else? No, that's that? all I remember. <laughs> That's all I remember. But I like is, to ask the follow, you know. Is it, uh, it going to be a series? Uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Okay. It yeah. could be just... It'll be on it Showtime? Could, couldn't be. It Probably. could be just on a phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't know. I don't know. I've seen... Yeah, I've seen I, I heard it rumblings of it about a year ago. I just was wondering. I think it's going to be all the old lesbians helping the young lesbians. That's oh, the plot. okay. I think that's really the plot. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the premise. Yeah. And they sit around and go, oh, I know what, yeah. gonna, how that's going to end. Yeah, right, right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> With Jenny being murdered. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Poor Jenny. Jenny. She just wrote. The me. hate lives on, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> she just emailed me. I don't know what for. Um, so talk a little bit about marvelous uh, Mrs. Maisel. Yes. This Amazon show. You you got an Emmy nomination for it, correct? I did. Yes. For, for your thing. Um, <laughs> 
explain uh, explain that doing that because I thought I was I was just I binge watched it I hadn't watched it it was a big hit and mm -hmm. you know every, it got viral and everyone says you got to watch it and that's how people are now they watch everything in these right. big chunks it, yeah. and I literally was sitting at home at like two in the morning like one episode and then you pop up and I had no idea you were there I think I texted you like what yeah. the fuck yeah, are you yeah, doing yeah. there Jane <laughs> <laughs> what uh, talk about that and the, the thinking behind that show and what you were trying to do you oh uh, you mean like in terms yeah, of create, create yeah. nothing to do with yeah. tech no tech no angle? no tech you don't have to make a tech okay. angle. well you know i'm, I'm there was one was there an eye watch that helped you with that yeah. character <laughs> well what i love about it is is such a throwback mm -hmm. it's it's old school and um i love the wardrobe and they're so good with this i mean they, it's like the best artisans in new york city are uh, building the clothes from scratch a lot of the time all my wardrobe has a label with my name ms lynch and it, it's <laughs> oh it's it's just it's beautiful um the fabrics are beautiful though even the, the background uh, actors look fantastic the sets are beautiful um the acting is glorious and the writing is wonderful I, yeah it's just wonderful i'm a um guest actor mm -hmm. so you know i'm not a part well, of explain your role for those who yeah oh be. sure um i play sophie lennon and she's a a, a comic and she's old school like uh, the borscht belt you know she's a housewife from queens and all her jokes are about how fat she is yeah. and how many husbands she's had yeah. and how much she likes to eat yeah. and she's a washerwoman you know she wears like a old dress and house her coat. Uh, house <laughs> coat yes and her set is just an ironing board behind her with an iron and a fake kitchen so it's like half set will travel yeah. so she's obviously been doing this shtick for years mm -hmm. But she's Are you very pulling Fanny Bryce. I, I, yeah, kind of like Fanny Bryce, you know, right. kind of like I'm ugly. I can't help it. And um, <laughs> uh, so that's how she was brought up in the entertainment world that women can't be funny unless they're making fun of themselves physically, emotionally. Um, and as like shrews. So she, you know, wanted to be successful. So she bought into this whole thing. And uh, she's quite successful at it. She's made a lot of money and she uh, lives in a beautiful brownstone in uh manhattan and uh when she's not in the fat suit and the house coat she wears beautiful clothing and she kind of look I, I use eleanor parker from the sound of music the baroness if you remember her <laughs> yes. as kind of my um uh my inspiration yeah, for true. that aspect of her character yeah. she's very smug and self-satisfied and erudite yeah and uh so complete contrast right. so an actor's dream really that it's i get brilliant to... actually the part of the butler you and the butler oh isn't back. he wonderful yeah yeah doors yeah my yeah. first room line to him is is the light caustic in the blue room <laughs> i'll check ma'am <laughs> <laughs> so what happens in this season? Can you tell us at all? Well, I, it, uh, Rachel Brosnahan. She did. She did a set where she insulted you. Yeah, and she insulted me. And she's the lead. You would think that I was the lead of the show from the way I'm communicating. Um, <laughs> she's actually the lead. She's in every episode, and it's about her. And uh, <laughs> neither here nor there. But she's a comic coming up, and she's not at all commenting on her appearance or her marriage status or her body she's kind of observational she you know she's an observational comic and um and, and it's working people are loving it she's she's crass she swears and um she starts in like the downtown clubs and the the audiences love her and she's trying to you know she alex borstein plays her lesbian-esque uh manager and who i think is in love with her 
and uh, and, and uh, she's really aggressive and um, ambitious for uh, Rachel's character, Midge. And uh, they start working their way to respectability, you mm -hmm. know, to Midtown. Right. And um, uh, of course, I, I, the, my character's. Uh, um, persona is kind of in vogue but she's starting to blow all of us away right. so she she humiliates me in public and then i exact my revenge in the second episode okay and the second season and yeah. um and it, leaving it open for the third season i think i'll, I'll be back oh man that would be yeah. great yeah. so we're gonna take some questions in the audience absolutely but i wanted to very quickly uh talk about just your things that you like techie because you, yeah. you're not doing twitter now but you've got well I, I will i mean oh and let me let me uh tell you i am i'm doing a show at the carlisle hotel this yes. week um, in the cabaret, the cafe, with uh, uh, Kate Flannery, who was Meredith the Drunk in the office. So if you're yeah. uh, interested in coming by, we're, we're there every night at yeah. 8 o'clock. Uh, That's very the, analog of you. Yeah, yes, and, and I'm actually tweeting about that. Okay. <laughs> um, so you, you have an Apple Watch. I have an Apple Watch. Technical at all, right? Hillary Rosen behind the stage told me she was the one who gave you your she first iPhone. She bought me my first iPhone, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm 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 in and out of like I hate when this tells me to stand up. Right. Okay. Do you get that? <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> stand up. You're getting fat. <laughs> but I love counting my steps. Yeah. I adore counting my steps in New York because I walk everywhere. Yeah, I've do. walked 12 miles a day, yeah. and I check. You know, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you don't you don't really jump into it. Right now there's a big tech lash against tech companies. Do you think about that at all? The impact, the addiction, things like that? Oh, I do. You know, and I see kids in restaurants and 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 the obliviousness of the parents where they, they don't have headphones on and the kids are playing some game with the volume up and I you know I I just you know I I know I sound like an old lady but I can't see how that's good. What about the impact? Like, I'm thinking of, like, Roseanne. Like, just Norm MacDonald just got in trouble because he made oh, one comment. Oh, I know. He can't shut up. Yeah, he can't shut up. He, he, he's got to put his, just shut yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> what about Roseanne being, tweeting out? The thing well, about you know what? Here's the thing. I think a lot of people who tweet out and do, I think it brings out the worst in us. It brings out the best in us. I've, I've been moved to tears of, of joy and love reading some things that people tweet and also some of the stuff that people yeah. say that it's just so bloody awful. And I think, you know, like Roseanne, she is mentally ill. And um, it would be better if she didn't tweet, but she does. It would be better if the inhabitant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue didn't act out his uh, <laughs> mental illness on Twitter <laughs> for all of us. But um, this isn't a political free zone, is it? No, no. of course not. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think it this brings out the worst. right here. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I think it brings out the worst and the best of us. It really does. And it's up to the individual each time. I'm so glad we have it. I love it. I, I love uh, being able to connect with people like that. I don't like talking on the phone. Yeah. I do everything via um, text. text and, yeah. yeah. And All the right. amount we get done in a day, by the way, people, compared right. to what we did just 10 years ago. Right. I'd what rather we can be get 10 done years in ago. A day. But, um... Questions from the audience for Jane. We just have a few or for Kara. Or for, none for Kara. <laughs> Kara loves Twitter. Great. Go ahead. Yes, right sir. Here. All right. Oh, okay. Let me. Pre I'll repeat the question. He said, um, how, "How how do you think the Glee and then Ryan Murphy in general 
um, has impacted uh, uh, g the gay and lesbian experience in this in this country in the world. You know, uh, uh, Ryan's all over the place in terms of the types of shows he does. Not, he just signed a big Netflix deal. Yeah, he just got a big dollars. Netflix deal, yeah. and he is uh, he walks his talk. Fifty percent of his crew is female. He and if he can't like he's, we were at an award show once and he said, "Does anybody know a female gaffer who's available? Because I can't find one." And he got a bunch of names. He's he's committed to inclusion. His shows have um, characters across the spectrum, uh, all walks of humanity. And you know, I think that uh, it, I don't know how you measure that kind of impact, but I think it's it's pretty huge. And I think for Glee, Glee was kind of a microcosm of what he does. Uh, it was full of all sorts of different people. Kind of, you could find your own archetype in there. Like there were a lot of uh, young girls who um, identified with Chris Colfer's gay kid character, and of course a lot of gay kids who uh, uh, got a lot of strength from his character. Uh, Kevin McHale played the kid in the wheelchair, and a lot of kids who live in wheelchairs could relate to him, but also there was something about his personality that you know, kids who aren't in wheelchairs were able to relate with. So I think that you, everybody had someone, if not two or three different characters, they could relate to on a deep soul level. And I think that's why it was so successful. And then they all get together once a day, go into a room where they're very safe, they have each other's back, and they raise their voice in song. You know, what's, what's more satisfying than that? And, and, Nothing. And, and that's you, why adults love it, too. And then you would look on in the shadows, angry and yet Yes, compelled. and of course, they, you know, the, uh, Sue Sylvester was not in the, the, originally in the pilot. And uh, the head of the network at the time, Kevin Riley, said, you got to have a villain. So they created Sue Sylvester, and they made her ridiculous and extreme. And actually, she's kind of based on Ryan. Ryan, <laughs> Ryan is that way, too. Ryan's all, always claiming fatwas. Who's on his enemies list? But he always does it with a, you know, a smile and a smirk. Uh, but Sue was dead serious. Yeah. yeah. Uh, little known fact, Ryan Murphy and I were interns at the Washington Post together. Oh, wow. Yeah. He did not like anybody there. Uh, <laughs> And, and he knew he was destined for better yeah, things. Yeah, he did, actually. He did. Oh, I'm and sure, he, as he, you did. Uh, well, yes. Yeah. But he said, he said it much more than I did. Okay, two more quick questions. She, she asked how um, she, we, I brought up mental health and um, how do I stay grounded in this world? And it's the same way that you, you guys stay grounded. You know, I, I don't take anything personally. I mean, if I do, I, you know, it's okay, honey. And then I get over it. Um, I, I don't have any goals or ambitions. I just... <laughs> I don't. She doesn't. You don't. I, I you don't. don't. Yeah, I, I really don't. I, I, you know, life has done so well for me in spite of my goals and ambitions. It, where it's, really, it's really just a flow. It's a, I don't necessarily buy cause and effect you so remember much. remember when you were talking about the Lee plot? And we were at my house in the kitchen and you were in part that party of five thing or party of whatever... The, the party show that was sort of a, a series. Oh, 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 um, a party down. Party down. Yeah. And you're like, I don't know, it's this interesting show about yeah. these kids who sing, and maybe it'll work out for me. And I'm like, oh, it sounds good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it was, yeah, it was kind of a cult hit. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I, you know, I just do what feels good. Um, if, if, if my goals, whatever my goals were, I, I'm so glad that I didn't get them. 
You know, I'm, I, and sometimes, and there's something deep inside of me that knows that making goals is kind of a silly thing. I mean, you, you, it's nice to have a checklist during the day, and believe me, I do. I love writing lists. It gives me a false sense of control. But um, <laughs> so I check it off and check it off and check it off. Yeah, I'll make it at this time. I'll leave at this time and blah blah. Get you know, But ultimately, <laughs> life is just flowing, man. It's just flowing. All right. Okay. Right here. Last question. Oh, not for a while. London Breed just became... I will be your campaign manager, for sure. (laughs) Um, You know, honestly, I don't know. San Francisco's gone round the bend, I got to tell you. It's like... I know, it's like urine 24-7. I came back from D.C. recently, and literally I was like, urine everywhere. Like, you know (laughs) what I mean? Like, it's just this... You're omnipresent. Yes. Yes. The urine is? Yes, it is. Yes. Um, Right here, last question. Murder, she wrote? Um, I don't think I was, but I've been in a lot of 90s television shows, but if I get them. <laughs> she asked me how I choose my roles. Yeah. If I get them, really, truly. I might be in more of a position now where I, where I, I don't do everything that's offered to me, but... Um, uh, you know, in the 90s, it was, uh, you know, you have an audition. Yes! And you get in there and you read for it. And get called back. Yes! And then they call you, you got the job. Yes! It's not like, well, you know what? No. I don't think I want that job. <laughs> I think I'll wait for the next, uh, you know, investigator who has three lines on, you know, CSI or whatever. No, I just, I, I, I never really chose. All right, last question for the goalless Jane, who doesn't want to do anything. Um, <laughs> what would you like to do? What, honey? What would you like to do? Nothing. <laughs> no. Hey, you know what I love doing is doing the show at the Carlisle is so much fun. Yeah. And, um, you know, and when, uh, you know, Sophie Lennon came a- across my desk, as they say, um, I was like, oh, my God, I want to do this. But, yeah, I don't have any desires for anything. Just death. <laughs> yeah. I'm waiting for death. Okay. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, you want to answer one more, one more question? Because I know we got to go. Right here. Last, very last question. <laughs> um, she said, I, I tend to play aggressive pow- and powerful people. Yeah, you know, I think that's just the, the vibe I, I give off. And um, <laughs> it's not necessarily 100% true, for sure. But um, it tends to be, you know, when I was young, there's something about being tall and just the way I yeah. carry myself. That must when be I was, nice. <laughs> yeah, right. See, you don't. When uh, you had to be scrappy and work for, you would say, hey, listen to me, listen to me. Yeah, and people it. were listening that's... to me when I was like 12 years old. <laughs> you know, I was about actually... six foot tall and I would walk into a room and I, I could, I would start to say something like, well, you know, I think, and I hear the room go quiet. <laughs> and it was almost like Merrill Lynch says, remember that commercial? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, pe- and I noticed people were like listening to me. And it usually made my voice go very soft. So you're essentially answering your question, yeah, you were always playing a lesbian. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or at least a suspected one, for a sure. A suspected lesbian. Yeah. Recently, someone met me for the first time and realized how tiny I am, and they <laughs> said, oh, you write tall. Um, <laughs> which I felt was you insulting do write to tall. short. <laughs> short is good. Yeah, short is anyway, fantastic. Jane Lynch, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. Thanks again to Jane Lynch, Lydia Polgreen, and Maggie Haberman for joining me on stage and to the organizers of Lesbians Who Tech. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
You can also find more episodes of Recode Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you didn't like the interview, well, you should have. Or if you just want to say hi, tweet at me. I'm at Kara Swisher on Twitter. Now that you're done with this, go check out our latest episode of Recode Media. You can find that show wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.